Today we'll be stepping away from our current series in uh, Matthew's Gospel, sort of. Uh, I'm actually going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to near the end of Matthew, to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We're just a couple of weeks uh, removed from Easter and Holy Week. Of course, uh, during that time, lots of people were talking about and thinking about what took place 2,000 years ago in the life of Christ. Especially with all that's going on with the coronavirus, it seems that more people uh, with many of the activities of their lives somewhat on pause were engaged in spiritual or religious conversation. Sadly, uh, most people just uh, move on in their lives to the next thing, and many completely missed the point to begin with, not really understanding the significance of what happened on that Good Friday or that Resurrection Sunday. I remember seeing an interview with the Catholic Archbishop of New York, and the question he was asked about how he would respond to a person who doubts God's existence and asks, where is God in these dark times? Uh, This uh, cardinal's response was that Jesus asked the same question when he was on the cross. That Jesus was sort of wondering why his father seemed to have abandoned him. But within seconds, he recovered his faith and hope. As if Jesus didn't fully know what was going on at the time. And I thought, how sad, uh, how deceiving, and, and what a missed opportunity to make it plain what actually was transpiring on the cross. So at least in my mind, there seemed to be a more of a focus this year on the events of Holy Week and Easter, but unfortunately that wasn't accompanied by a clear or biblical presentation of what really occurred. And a lot of people walked away with the false idea that Jesus was simply a good man who stood for what he believed in, or that the cross was simply an an object lesson about injustice or hopelessness. This morning, I want us to see something of the true significance of the crucifixion, revealed to us through the supernatural events and the words spoken by Christ on that day. The day which, even to the casual reader of the Bible, is obviously the focal point of the redemption storyline. You can see that just from the pace and the flow of the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, The Bible starts with creation several thousand years before the advent of Christ. But just in the book of Genesis, you have thousands of years of history that transpire. When you get to the Exodus and God's deliverance of the Hebrew people from bondage, you're up to about the mid-1500s B.C., And then from that time through the time of the judges, you have another 400 years. And then from from the time of Saul, Israel's first king to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, hundreds of years. And then you have Malachi prophesying after some of the Jews returned to their land, uh, but sadly during a time of spiritual deterioration in Israel. And then 400 years of prophetic silence. Uh, during what is commonly referred to as the intertestamental period. 
And then the Gospel of Matthew opens with the incarnation of Jesus, his birth, uh, Joseph and Mary's flight to Egypt and their move to Nazareth. And then uh, not over the span of centuries, but years, Matthew introduces the ministry of John the Baptist and the baptism of Christ around A.D. 29. And the ministry of Jesus gets underway. And for the next uh, 18 chapters, Matthew records select details about the teaching, about the authority, and the miracles of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry. And then you come to chapter 21, and you realize that you've gone in the Bible from thousands of years to centuries to decades to years and months and to one very important week. And everything slows down. And it's Sunday and then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and you find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and now you're down to hours. And it's clear that what's about to happen is paramount. Now, most of you would agree that when a person is at the end of their life and facing imminent death, that their words can be particularly revealing. And that dying men rarely indulge in in chatter that is trivial. There's a story about Pancho Villa, the the infamous uh, sort of Mexican uh, general-turned-bandit during the time of the Mexican Revolution, who was dying from a gunshot wound and grabbed his bodyguard and said, don't let it in like this. Tell them that I said something. And then he died. Now, if that's a true account, Pancho Villa had the right idea. He just didn't have anything to say. And then there are many examples of Christians who have made some profound statements near death, such as William Carey, the great missionary to India, who said on his deathbed, when I am gone, speak less of Dr. Carey and more of Dr. Carey's Savior. And many times the last words of men and women spoken on the verge of eternity are words of extreme significance and weight. And such is the case as you come into the context of Matthew 27, specifically the time of Jesus' crucifixion. What you find when you put all the gospel accounts together is that the Lord Jesus Christ, during a a period of six hours on the cross, from nine o'clock in the morning until three in the afternoon, uttered seven statements. He expressed seven dying sentences. Uh, Not his last words, but his dying words. Now, of those seven statements, Matthew and Mark record one of those statements conjointly. Uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Luke records three more, and John records three. But chronologically, we want to look at this fourth statement from the cross, the one recorded by Matthew and Mark. And, and their incredible words, which with, with such uh, deep and profound truth, uh, distilled, as it were, into a droplet of speech. And yes, Isaiah told us that during Jesus' mockery and cross-examination that the Messiah would remain silent, and he did. He was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He, he opened not his mouth. 
But here on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ breaks the silence. First with a plea for forgiveness, uh, then with a promise of salvation made to the penitent thief, and then a statement concerning the care and provision of his mother Mary, in some cases uh, addressing himself to those around him, but in every case with sympathy and grace. And then what happens next is staggering. Let's jump into this narrative at verse 45 of Matthew 27. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we won't cover all of these verses, and we'll... Uh, truthfully, only, only scratch the surface of the ones that we do. But let's consider two things this morning. Uh, we want to first consider the supernatural darkness, and then secondly, uh, consider the Savior's declara- declaration. First, c- considering the supernatural darkness. Uh, over in Mark chapter 15, Mark tells us that it was the third hour when Jesus was crucified. As I said, that is equivalent to 9 o'clock in the morning, Uh, That means that when we come to this scene in Matthew 27, our Lord has already endured the cross for three hours. And about midday, the Bible tells us that it became like midnight. At 12 o'clock noon, a darkness descended around that scene at the cross. And it remained that way for three more hours. Again, verse 46, then about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, Jesus entered into what one person called the crucifixion of the crucifixion from 12 o'clock until 3, as he was made sin for us in the darkness of those hours. And towards the end of it, At the apex of his suffering, at the climax of this horror, he pierces the silence and that darkness with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which, by the way, was around the time of the evening sacrifice taking place at the temple in Jerusalem, which is significant because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law, and he came as the Lamb of God to take away sin once and for all. And so he is pouring out his soul unto death, and he is doing it in the midst of this supernatural phenomenon of darkness. Now, it's, it's not possible from the text to determine how widespread the darkness was, whether it was uh, simply something that took place um, locally or in this particular region, or perhaps if it was, uh, some believe it, it was actually a global event, um, God was certainly capable of doing either. 
Uh, and in Luke's account, he describes the darkness by saying that, that quote, the, the sun's light failed. But what was significant? What, what was the significance of the darkness? Because this isn't simply an act of nature. It's, it's obviously an act of God that communicates something about Jesus' death. Now, there have been many suggestions. Uh, Douglas Moo, um, in uh, one of his uh, writings, lists eight different interpretations of the darkness. Uh, there are several others that I came across uh, in my research this week, some very thought-provoking um, and a few off the wall. Uh, but let me suggest that we keep at least three factors in mind as we think about the possibilities. First, the meaning of the darkness in the Old Testament Secondly, the way that Matthew uses the concept of darkness earlier in his gospel. And then thirdly, what interpretation of the darkness fits best with Matthew's presentation of Jesus' death in his passion narrative. So first, let's just start with the Old Testament. Since Matthew was deeply steeped in and influenced by the Old Testament, we see this in his prevalent use of quotations and allusions, not to mention his emphasis upon the fulfillment of Scripture uh, this is true even in Matthew's passion narrative. And often the two suggested Old Testament allusions for the darkness are Amos chapter 8, verse 9, and Exodus chapter 10, verse 22. Uh, Amos 8, 9 specifically says that the sun would go down at noon. And Exodus chapter 10, verse 22 uses almost the same language as that found in Matthew 27, verse 45. And in both places, darkness is used to refer to God's judgment. And darkness is used repeatedly as, as a sign of God's judgment in the Old Testament, particularly in relation to the coming day of the Lord. So it appears that Matthew understood the darkness at the cross to refer to God's judgment, a judgment uh, so great, so terrible, that it foreshadows, if you will, the eschatological day of the Lord. But secondly, this interpretation corresponds with how Matthew uses the idea of darkness elsewhere in his gospel. Even though John is typically viewed as the evangelist that makes the most out of the theme of darkness, in fact, Matthew actually mentions darkness more than John does. John with nine and Matthew with ten and the first thing to point out about Matthew's use of darkness is that it all is always used in, in a negative sense. Uh, darkness can refer to, in Matthew, uh, to God's judgment in connection with the last days. We see that in chapter 24, verse 29. And, and it can also be used to refer to hell. In fact, three different times Matthew uses darkness as a picture of what hell will be like. Interestingly, Matthew is the only gospel, uh, the only gospel writer to use the image of darkness to describe hell. So, in light of the unique and repeated emphasis in Matthew that hell is a place of outer darkness, it seems likely that he would also understand the darkness at Jesus' death in this way as well, which would support the idea that the darkness at the cross refers to to God's judgment. Moreover, the darkness as a sign of God's judgment fits perfectly in Matthew's passion narrative. Matthew specifically states in chapter 26, verse 31, that it is God himself 
who will strike Jesus on the cross. After singing a hymn to close the Passover meal, Jesus left for Gethsemane with his 11. And Matthew states in verse, uh, verse 30 of chapter 26, about, uh, he states this, and then the very next verse, verse 31, Matthew says the following, quoting a messianic prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now what's important to note is that Christ used uh, a first-person singular, I, and not the plural, they. I will strike down the shepherd, not they will strike. So who is the I of, of, of whom Jesus spoke? Well, the full quotation of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, uniquely requires God, the Father's, active involvement. So while human and satanic agents all had a part, the word mandates a specific and deliberate striking of God's Messiah by the Father, something that we would never know unless God had revealed it. That is to say, God's judgment fell upon Jesus at the cross. And when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, he referred to his approaching death as drinking the cup of God's wrath. So, understanding darkness as a reference to, God, to God's judgment fits with this theme, particularly if the darkness signaled God's judgment upon his beloved son. Think about it. At Calvary... God draws a curtain of darkness around his son because sin is being judged in Jesus Christ. According to Isaiah 53, verse 10, it was the will of God. It, it pleased the Lord to crush and to bruise him. In fact, verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 53 say this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. During those hours upon the cross, it was, it was as if the magnifying glass of God's holiness concentrated the justice of God and his wrath against sin upon the person of Christ, burning its way through him during those final hours upon the cross. And in that darkness, our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> who knew no sin, was made sin for us. So, sort of stepping back to, to view the six-hour crucifixion, this, this scenario emerges. Satan and all of his forces assaulted Jesus for the first three hours. And then in the very midst of their savagery, God the Father approached God the Son. Jesus had endured so much by the midpoint of his crucifixion, and yet the most horrific aspects of his suffering were only now beginning. And to the perplexed astonishment of the holy angelic world and utter disbelief of Satan and his demons, the Father began striking the Son 
with wrath. Violent, divine wrath poured out in vengeance upon the only guilt offering worthy to receive it. And for three hours, the Lamb endured unspeakable torment, matched only by the Father's holy capacity to strike so severely the one that he loved so infinitely. For three hours, the Father smote the Son with the full wrath that he alone could render. That is the darkness. The darkness of solemn judgment, the judgment of God. But what about the declaration? Consider the Savior's declaration. The, the declaration brings us to, to, to consider this, the, the crucifixion, if you will, within, as I said, within the crucifixion. Again, it was midnight at midday, said Charles Spurgeon, and, and after mentioning the darkness that covered all the land, Matthew tells how Jesus cried out in agony from the cross. Verse 46, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, it's the only saying from the cross that Matthew records out of seven that are found in the Gospels. And he reports it in, in the in, in sort of Greek transliteration before offering his actual translation. It's traditionally called uh, the cry of dereliction. According to Donald Hagner in his commentary, he says it's one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the gospel narrative. This cry of desolation as our Lord declares an absence of God's known presence. In this moment of divine abandonment, I want to look at two aspects of this. First, Christ's forsakenness, and then secondly, Christ's Father. First, let's think for a minute about Christ's forsakenness. In this cry, we, we see that this is the climax of our Lord's forsakenness. That is to say, if you wind the clock back to the beginning of that final week, you'll notice a progression of isolation in the life of Christ, a, a descent into loneliness. Back in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew tells us that when Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, that previous Sunday, that according to verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. But as the week progresses, Jesus finds himself increasingly alone and isolated. The crowds that once cried, crown him, would soon cry, crucify him. And so he secludes himself in an upper room with his disciples, the twelve, and they supper together. But there is one in their midst who is going to betray Jesus, and that, that one is Judas, after the Lord hands Judas that piece of bread, Judas slips out into the darkness, leaving eleven. 
But as the night unfolds and the Lord Jesus Christ leaves the upper room and crosses the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes Peter, James, and John with him and asks them to, to keep watch. And then he goes beyond them, the scripture says, and battles with the thought of going to the cross, three times praying and committing himself to obey his father, but three times finding his disciples sleeping. At that point, the temple guards arrive with some Roman soldiers, Judas in their company, coming to arrest Jesus. And in the midst of that, his disciples scatter. Which Jesus told them would happen. In John 16, he answered them in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So in just five days' time, we go from this adoring cry of the crowds at his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to the 12 disciples, to the 11, to the 3, but like frightened sheep, they scatter in fear. But Jesus is not alone. He still has the Father, and as he climbs the hill to Calvary's cross and he is lifted up on that cross and he suffers physically those first three hours he finds himself in the company of the father but from noon until three in the darkness of that Friday afternoon as the wrath of God is poured out upon him he experiences a God forsakenness that is a mystery to us God experiencing God-forsakenness. A divine separation never before experienced and one that never could possibly take place again. Again, it's a mystery, uh, so much so that Martin Luther, studying this text one day for hours, sat and stared at this verse. He wrote nothing, He silently pondered these words and then suddenly got up from his desk and and exclaimed, God forsaken by God. How can it be? But here the Lord Jesus declares, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Earlier from the cross, he had addressed the Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the very end, he will address the Father again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But here, during these hours, the Lord Jesus Christ experiences an absence of the Father's nearness. Not an absence of the Father's love, but an absence of his known presence. And here we come to the very heart of the Christian faith, the very heart of the gospel that our Lord Jesus on the cross became not only a sacrifice for sin, but a substitute for sinners. Our sin was laid upon him. Uh, This is what was going on in Matthew 27 on that Friday afternoon. Christ was reckoned guilty for our sakes. This was the most unbearable portion of the cup our Lord Jesus had to drink. 
Mark this well, and all that he had previously endured, only in this last remaining portion of his cup, did Jesus scream in untold agony. This is what was transpiring at this moment in history. All our sin being poured out on his head. And the Christ is now alone. Just like the scapegoat, Jesus was alone and laden with our sins. If you were to go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21, you would learn that on the Day of Atonement, the priest would symbolically lay his hands on the head of a scapegoat and confess over it all the sins of the people. And then that scapegoat would be pushed into an inhabited place, sent into the wilderness, to a remote area and set free. That's the picture of what is going on here. Christ is the Lamb of God. And at this moment, the Father places the sin of the world upon the head of His Son. And like the scapegoat, He is pushed out into that uninhabited place. And He feels all of the estrangement that sin brings between man and God. The fellowship And intimacy that he has enjoyed from eternity past is now interrupted, disrupted. And he expresses it in that lonely cry, borrowing borrowing from the words of David in Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing the sting of death and the wages of sin. We know why. We can't understand the full extent of Christ's experience, but we know why. Our iniquity was being laid on him, and he was paying the penalty for our sin. He felt the wrath of God. He experienced the estrangement of the Father in that uninhabited place where, according to Psalm 76, verse 7, there is no standing And all of the billows of God's wrath poured over the head of the Lord Jesus, bearing the sting of death and the wages of sin. Now at this point, I think it's important to clarify something lest we make um, a tragic error because while the emphasis is on the Father's forsaking the Son here, a mystery that we will not fully understand, We must be careful not to create a false impression about God the Father when we talk about the dereliction of God the Son. So let's consider, lastly, Christ's Father. We we mustn't suppose that, that God was angry with his Son here, for never was a Son more pleasing to the Father than Jesus was to his. In Matthew, earlier in Matthew, in chapter 3, the father broke the silence at Jesus' baptism and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He repeats his pleasure regarding his son in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus was transfigured. And in Matthew 26, when Jesus in a collapsed state on the floor of Gethsemane said, not my will, but father, your will be done. There was never a son more pleasing to the father than the Son of God. So we must not think that somehow the Father in this moment on the cross was angry with his Son. And the Son, because of that, felt abandoned. 
No, the father was angry with sin, but not the son. So we must understand that on the other side of this God-forsakenness, there stands the father who bears the pain of his son bearing our sin. The father sent the son, the son came willingly, and when the son is agonizing upon the cross, the father is bearing pain in his own heart. It pleased the father to bruise him, pleased that he was being vindicated through the obedience and the sacrifice of his son, pleased because his son was redeeming a people for the father's glory. But when we read in Romans 8 that the father gave up his son or delivered him over, when he allowed his son to walk the path of sorrow and suffering to the cross, when those Roman soldiers drove iron spikes through the hands and feet of Christ, when that happened, those spikes pierced the very heart of God the Father because he stands behind the cross. Again, it's hard to get our minds around. John, John MacArthur summarizes these verses, verses 45, 46, this way. He says, quote, In some mysterious way during those awful hours on the cross, the Father poured out the full measure of his wrath against sin, and the recipient of that wrath was God's own beloved Son. In this lies the true meaning of the cross. Those who try to explain the atoning work of Christ in any other terms inevitably end up nullifying the truth of Christ's atonement altogether. Christ was not merely providing an example for us to follow. He was no mere martyr being sacrificed to the wickedness of the men who crucified him. He wasn't merely making a public display so that people would see the awfulness of sin. He wasn't offering a ransom price to Satan or any of the other various explanations religious liberals, cultists, and pseudo-Christian religionists have tried to suggest over the years. Here's what was happening on the cross. God was punishing his own son as if he had committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who would ever believe. And he did it so that he could forgive and treat those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, also got it right with these lyrics. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for sins that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. Now, what are some of the implications in closing? Well, let me just give you a few. For, for one, there's something about the nature of sin. Sin isolates, sin, sin dislocates, sin creates distance, it, it introduces enmity, it, it burns bridges, it builds walls. Sin separates man from man, and more tragic than that, sin separates us from God. 
And according to Psalm 58, verse 3, the wicked are estranged from the womb and go astray from birth, speaking lies. That is to say that when we come into this world, God is not our father. He must become our father through the new birth and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit because we are born in sin. We are conceived into a state of separation from God. And unless there's a remedy and that remedy applied, we will die in that state of separation from God and that will be made eternal in the experience of hell where we will be removed from the presence and glory of God forever. But in an act of self-sacrifice and self-substitution, God sends his son and the son came to bear the guilt and punishment of sin and to bridge the gulf between God and a rebellious creation. Second, there's another thing I think that we learn from the crucifixion within the crucifixion, and that is this. The Savior sympathizes with our experience of loneliness. Loneliness is really an ep- at epidemic proportions in our culture. And America had a chronic loneliness problem before COVID-19. Sin has brought isolation. Uh, it has brought estrangement. But our Lord understands that, and and to a degree that we will never fully comprehend. But according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, he tells us to come confidently to the throne of grace, to talk to him, because he knows what we feel. He knows what we experience. He's experienced it. He's experienced the betrayal of others. He's experienced the pain of isolation. He's entered into our loneliness. He was taken outside the gate. His disciples fled. He knows what it's like to be set aside, to be left out, to be unjustly blamed and punished. And he longs in mercy to help us in times of trouble. He has cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that you'll never have to? He will never leave you nor forsake you. He's not only a savior, he is a companion. The psalmist says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He will not leave you an orphan or alone. Third, through this darkness and this declaration, we are given a glimpse into the reality of hell. Even though it's certainly not popular, popular to talk about hell anymore, even within some churches, hell is real. There is a place that you can end up in from which there is no escape. It is a dark and lonely place, absent of God's love and grace. And if you doubt that, then come to the foot of the cross at three o'clock on that historic Friday afternoon and listen to the Lord Jesus cry in dereliction, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And if you do end up in hell, you, you may ask that question, as much as you want, but as a lost soul, you won't hear anything back. You won't get any kind of answer. That's, that is the reality of hell. Eternal darkness. Irrevocable abandonment by God. An abyss of suffering with no window of hope and no door of escape. I mean, do, you, do you really think that God will wink at your sin on judgment day when he put his son through hell to pardon you. Do you really believe that? 
Yes, the, yes the, the, the God of the Bible is a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness and justice and inflexible righteousness. God doesn't weak at sin. Just look at the cross. God punishes sin. And if you don't find pardon in his son, he will punish your sin in you for all eternity. Again, if you doubt that, then you haven't listened well to the cry of Jesus on the cross. On June 5th, 19, uh, in the year 1910, American short story writer William Sidney Porter, better known by his pen name, O. Henry, spoke his last words. Do you know what they were? Turn up the lights. I don't want to go home in the dark. I hope and pray that you don't hear the Savior's words this morning and go out into the dark. Jesus endured the darkness. He took our sin upon himself. And if you put your faith where God put your sin, there's forgiveness. May you find the one who, has, who was forsaken for you so that you might not be forsaken by God. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, may we meditate today and this week on the pain of our Savior and passion of our Lord that he went into that uninhabited place so that we can say today, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for such testimony so dramatically, so, so clearly given when Jesus died that you are a God of wrath a God of infinite, utter holiness, but also a God of love and mercy and grace who receives the sinner. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, only a fool would choose to love his or her, her sin over this indescribable gift of forgiveness and restored fellowship with you forever. Would you open our eyes today to see this reality? Would you help us to understand the surpassing greatness of your power and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge? Would you turn to us that we may turn to you? Would you help us to believe? In Christ's name, amen. Amen.